please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to start with verse 1 and read on down to chapter 4, verse 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they'll not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that I would not misspeak. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our instructor this morning. Convince us of the truth. Convict us of where we're wrong. Instruct us in how we are to go. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this morning, I'll focus the sermon on explaining and applying 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, but we're going to talk about the surrounding text in the background because that's crucial for the application here. We're going to explain these parts of it so that we get a more complete idea of what Paul is telling Timothy. And so this will be a doctrinal sermon, but it, hopefully it'll be practical as well. Doctrine should be practical. Doctrine is about what we believe so that we can live it out. 
Now, why did I choose this particular text and this doctrine to preach on this morning? When you look back on the, on the back wall of our church, you'll, you'll see some sayings, uh, the five solas from the Reformation. And over here on the left-hand side, sola scriptura. And those of you who have been here long enough know that I really enjoy teaching about the Reformation once in a while. And so sola scriptura is one of those foundational ideas that, that came uh, from the Reformation as they sought to go back to the Bible, back to uh, the source of our faith. The Scriptures were to be the final authority, not church councils, not the Pope, not man's ideas, but the Scriptures. They're inspired, not the Pope. Why study the doctrine, then, of the inspiration of Scripture today? Because if we lose that battle, if we forsake that doctrine, the gospel is almost assured to be lost for our generation. The gospel is inherently tied, of course, with God's Word and the truthfulness of God's Word. It is the message of God's Word. Just as the gospel was lost to a large extent in the Middle Ages, it can happen again in any uh, church, in any denomination, in any nation that forsakes the idea of the Bible being the inspired Word of God. It can happen. This sermon also ties in with what Jonathan Watson preached last week where he discussed our hope and help from the Holy Spirit in this present age of suffering from Romans chapter 8. Jonathan told us from the Scriptures how the Holy Spirit Himself intercedes for us and helps us in our weakness and in the difficult days that we face. And so this week we're talking about the inspiration of Scripture, another work that the Spirit has done, and how the Spirit will take the Word of God and use it in your life to sustain you in difficult days, to, to keep you on mission in those difficult days, to teach us, to reprove us, correct us, and train us. Now, when I was a teenager and young man in Southern Baptist life 30 and 40, 45 years ago, there was a great struggle for the soul of the Southern Baptist Convention. The struggle was essentially over the definition and implications of this doctrine, the inspiration of the Bible. The vast majority of this local congregation is under 40 years of age and did not experience that great denominational struggle. You may not have even heard of much of it. I was there. I experienced it as a church member, as a seminary student, and as a young pastor of a neighborhood church. And so I'm here to preach this doctrine to you today because the same struggle, but in different forms, is showing up in this generation. It shows up in every generation. It as old, this struggle for this doctrine is as old as Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent said to Eve, did God really say, you know, he, he cast doubt on God's word. And so that is a perennial temptation, a, a perennial struggle uh, for the church. And so the main idea that I want us to learn from the words Paul wrote Timothy is that in these last days, difficult days, with all the false teachers, the, the heresies, the horrible, sinful, evil worldviews that you will be faced with, we can completely depend on the Bible because it alone is inspired by God. It alone is completely true and trustworthy. It will never fail you as it reveals the heart and mind, the actions and promises of our Creator. It gives us the gospel from which we take it to the world. We must take, make this, uh, this confidence in God's word seriously and faithfully proclaim the gospel in word and deed regardless of the cost 
that society will make us pay. Because society is so against the gospel, so against Christ, that when they hear people adhering to this doctrine and faithfully proclaiming the word of God, proclaiming the gospel, society largely will reject and actually attack. Now, first of all, let's look at the situation. When you believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God, you will face difficult days. Let's look at Paul. Now, Paul's writing Timothy during his second imprisonment in Rome. He's awaiting trial, and in, in 4, 6, chapter 4, verse 6, he, he really seems to know it's the end. He, he expects execution, we, we think. Uh, it, it would be the likely result because what he was dealing with in Emperor Nero. Uh, Emperor Nero reigned from AD, 37 to 60, or AD 54 to 68, um, and we think that 2 Timothy was written in that time frame, Nero was exceedingly immoral and considered to be insane by many. After the great fire destroyed much of Rome in AD 64, Nero managed to blame the Christians, even though many people thought he himself was responsible for not only setting the fire, but restraining uh, the firefighters so that he could gain a certain part of land and build himself a palace. The great Roman historian Tacitus writes this about the Christians in that time. But neither human resource nor imperial munificence nor appeasement of the gods eliminated sinister suspicions that the fire had been instigated. To suppress this rumor, Nero fabricated scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called. Their originator, Christ, had been executed in Tiberius's reign by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. But in spite of this temporary setback, the deadly superstition had broken out afresh, not only in Judea, where the mischief had started, but even in Rome. All degraded and shameful practices collect and flourish in the capital. First, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. Then, on their information, large numbers of others were condemned, not so much for incendiarism as for their antisocial tendencies. Their deaths were made farcical. Dressed in wild animal skins, they were torn to pieces by dogs, or crucified, or made into torches to be ignited after dark as substitutes for daylight. Nero provided his gardens for the spectacle, and exhibited displays in the circus at which he mingled with the crowd, or stood in a chariot dressed as a charioteer. Despite their guilt as Christians, and the ruthless punishment it deserved, the victims were pitied, for it was felt that they were being sacrificed to one man's brutality rather than to the national interest. Notice all the pejoratives that Tacitus used to describe Christians. They were hated. We can expect the same today. All throughout time, even when Christians supposedly ruled the culture, reigned, there were always those who hate Christ, hate the gospel, are willing to torture and kill Christians. Paul mentions the last days in verse 1 of chapter 3. This is the time period between Christ's first advent and his second coming. So we live in the last days like the entire church has for the last 2,000 years. So history is divided in halves here, the time before Christ and the time after his resurrection and ascension. Of course, professional historians now have forsaken B.C. before Christ and A.D. Anno Domini 
the year of our Lord, in favor of BCE, before the common era, and CE, the common era. So they're getting away from Christ, even in the professional historical uh, side of things. So no mistake about it, we're living in the last days, and I would say that we are definitely closer to the end of time uh, the, the further along we go. But times of difficulty, Paul mentioned, times of difficulty. The word there for difficulty can mean fierce. It can mean like an infection, like gangrene. And I think that's an appropriate term for the last days, gangrenous. The general idea Paul is stating then is that in these last days, there will be seasons of violent gangrenous difficulty that come and go. John MacArthur writes, these perilous times will become more and more frequent and intense, whereas the intervening periods of relative tranquility will become less frequent and peaceful as the return of Christ nears. And so there's this sense of things speeding up, of evil multiplying. And I don't think it's just our subjective opinion that things are moving more quickly towards the end. With technology and communications and transportations, uh, the world has shrunk allowing for many blessings that come with technology, but also the rapid spread of evil. In his first letter to Timothy in 4.1, Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. And so, so again, as the end times go, it seems like more heresies, more departures from the faith, more teachings of demons will prolificate. So, Things are going from bad to worse. For people will be lovers of self, Paul says. And, and all these other things that he, that he talks about here in chapter 3, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. But notice, who are the people Paul's talking about here? Now, certainly this is a list of sinful traits and people, uh, it's true of all people, all, all, all sinners. But Paul is especially saying that these people are in the church or trying to get in the church, trying to lead the church. These are some of the heretics. And, and Paul tells Timothy to avoid these kinds of sinners. And we know from 1 Corinthians 5 that Paul told the Corinthians to not associate with these sexually immoral, meaning people who are claiming Christ but living a life of gross immorality. We see Jesus eating with tax collectors and prostitutes. So, so it's not avoiding the, the lost sinner that, that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the struggle that Timothy is facing in the church with these evil people, heretics and immoral persons. Those who claim Christ but live like the devil. They have a form of godliness but deny its power. They're religious, they're, they're religious but not regenerate. Spiritual but not filled with the Holy Spirit. And so in the last times, there will be a lot of heretics a lot of immoral religionists, imposters out for money, sex, and power who run apostate churches and ministries. Avoid such people, Paul tells us. Timothy's situation then, he was born of a Greek father and a Jewish mother. Grandmother was Jewish. We find him mentioned in Acts 16.1 as already being a disciple in Lystra. And so he saw Paul's first mission trip uh, through the area probably in Acts 14. Perhaps he had even witnessed Paul getting stoned and, and beaten. Uh, he, at least, he at least knew about it. And then from 1 Timothy 1 and a few other verses, we know that Timothy now is still in Ephesus, combating these false teachings, these heretics. From what Paul was written in 2 Timothy, we see that these false teachers 
these immoral people were, were a danger to the church. So it's not the lost people. It's people inside the church trying to corrupt the church. Notice how very quickly then that as the gospel spreads, heresies and cults spring up. Swindlers and imposters take advantage. The devil works his way in. False gospels arise to compete with the true gospel. And so now Timothy receives a letter from Paul where his mentor is giving his last instructions before he's to be executed. We don't know if Timothy made it to Rome in time to minister to Paul one last time before he was executed, decapitated. Paul was a Roman citizen, so he did not get crucified. He had his head removed. So what is our situation? What difficult days are we facing? Without a doubt, we Christians in America have it easy compared with most of Christians around the world for most of history. In a way, I I don't want to communicate that we have it bad when we can look at the church today in China and see fear from the government, or North Korea, where if you're a Christian, you end up in a concentration camp, or if you're in the Middle East somewhere, you end up uh, beheaded or tortured, raped, enslaved. If you don't frequently read the news, I would suggest that as a Christian, you should at least keep track of some of the news of what is happening to Christians around the world to, to spark prayer so that you can understand the suffering that the church is going through. I, th- I think it's, it's reasonable to say that since 1917 and the rise of communism, there has been greater persecution of Christians in the last 100 years than at any other time previously in the history of the church. The second main idea here, the Bible is inspired by God and is authoritative and true. So we've seen the difficult days. We've seen the situation that Paul and Timothy faced. We've touched briefly on the situation in our day. I'll get back to that a a little bit later as an application. But right now, let's look at this wonderful doctrine in this passage. And the question I would ask uh, about the Bible being inspired by God and it's authoritative and true, here's the fundamental question. Do we have a religion that's revealed by God or made up by man? Is our religion, is our faith revealed by God or has it been made up? This passage makes a very bold claim that is either true or false. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, he he uses a term in verse 15, sacred writings. Paul takes note that Timothy has been acquainted with the sacred writings, meaning the Old Testament from his childhood. So, so the scriptures that he is, he is talking about specifically in Timothy's context would be uh, the Old Testament scriptures that point to Christ. Uh, Old Testament scriptures Paul based much of his preaching on, as well as the sayings of Jesus that were circulating around. Uh, perhaps by this point in Paul's life, maybe he has seen the gospel of Mark, perhaps the gospel of Matthew. Uh, I'm not sure. But we do know that, that Paul believed the Old Testament to be the Word of God. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, let me make a quick application and observation here. Generally speaking, in many churches, the Old Testament is best is at best neglected and frequently reviled. I heard a man on the radio just this past week uh, talking about the Old Testament and saying how we need to get rid of the Old Testament. 
Now, the Jews need to, to give up many portions of the Old Testament. The New Testament was fine, he said, but the Old needed to go because of the appearance of advocating violence. Well, that's kind of an extreme position, but it, obviously the man was not coming from a Christian uh, perspective at all. But when I was pastoring a Baptist church, congregation, just a normal, small neighborhood congregation, a large percentage of the church really could not stand Old Testament preaching. Very vocal about their preference. No Old Testament teaching was, was acceptable. I'll agree with Paul and Jesus and say the Old Testament is the Word of God every bit as much as the New Testament. Of course, we know to interpret the Old through the New. But a lot of people have kind of a, a canon within a canon, and by doing that, they're denying the authority of God's Word. They are, they are creating their, their own, imposing their own idea upon Scripture. And that kind of view of God's Word is unfortunately very common in a lot of sectors of uh, Christian churches. Now, we also apply verse, in verse 16 when Paul says, all Scripture, we apply that to the New Testament as well. Did Paul... Uh, this word that he uses there, uh, graphe, for, for all Scripture, it's frequently used by the early church to define both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The early church very quickly accepted uh, Paul's letters and the Gospels uh, and the other letters as, as the New Testament and equated it with the Old. They're both Scripture. Now, studies have shown that the Pentateuch claims to be divinely inspired about 680 times and the historical books over 400 times, the poetic books about 200 times, and prophetic books 1,300 times. And, and so there's plenty of statements all throughout the Old Testament claiming to be the Word of God. The New Testament has at least 300 quotes from the Old and a thousand other references to the Old. And Paul many times claimed to be speaking the Word of God in, in the Spirit, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, or 2 Corinthians 2, 17. Or Galatians chapter 1, Colossians 1, 1 Thessalonians 2. Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture in 2 Peter 3.16. So, so there are many in-depth reasons and proofs for believing that all the Bible, the New Testament as well as the Old, is inspired by God. But this is not going to be an apologetic sermon. I'm going to assume that by far most people in here have a solid understanding of the doctrine. And so uh, we're going to focus much more on the application of it as, as we finish explaining it here. But the main word here, inspired, we do need to talk about just a little bit. The idea of the, of the word is not so much that the men who wrote the Scriptures were inspired or breathed into, so much as it is the Scriptures that were breathed out by God. In other words, the, the main thrust of this teaching is that the Word of God comes from God. It, it's, it's about the origin. It comes from God. It belongs to God. He gives it to us. He reveals Himself through it. He breathes it out. This is a supernatural process whereby the Spirit of God ensures that what the authors of the Bible write, wrote was exactly what God intended. The authors of Scripture no doubt wrote lots of other things in their life that were not Scripture, that were not inspired. But these letters, these Gospels, the books were inspired, breathed out by God. And this inspiration by God took many different forms. Sometimes 
dictation. I mean, you can read the Old Testament, and very clearly there's, uh, you know, the Lord says, and, and throughout the prophets as well. But sometimes it's very a very soft manner of inspiration, such as a lot of the poetry we find in uh, Psalms. Sometimes it's a very strong, thus saith the Lord in the prophets. And then when we come to the New Testament, we have the words of Christ himself remembered and brought to mind by the Holy Spirit, by the gospel authors, and, and quoted very words of Christ. With Luke, he states right there in his preface that he did a lot of research to write his gospel. And then when, he, when we move to Acts, a lot of it's written in first person. We, we, he, he accompanied Paul on much of the journeys there in Acts. And so it's a, a first person travel account in a lot of ways. So, so the Spirit uses lots of ways to bring about inspiration. The Bible is a very human book in the sense that it's written by men. Their personalities shine through along with the divinely inspired words, and so you have differences of grammar, different word usage, uh, different uh, ideas and, and ways of expressing those ideas. So it's a, a human and a divine book. While all the men who wrote it were still sinners and they made errors in the rest of their life at times, not so with scriptures. The Holy Spirit ensured that what was written is the very word of God. So the Bible does not merely contain the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. Many people love portions of Scripture and detest other portions of Scripture. And so they want to say, well, the Bible does contain the Word of God, and they'll pick out things like maybe 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, or perhaps the Sermon on the Mount, or many of the Psalms, but some other passages... Oh, if Jesus is talking about hell, no, surely Jesus wouldn't say anything about hell. And so they will excise out passages that they don't particularly like. So they'll still claim, oh, we believe in inspiration. It's just parts of it are inspired. Well, what does that do? That gives man the central authority over Scripture. Man becomes the judge of Scripture instead of submitting to the authority of Scripture. This gives man the central authority in life instead of relying on the Bible as the central authority. Many would say, as some have said to me, well, you worship the Bible instead of Christ. I would say I worship the Christ who is proclaimed in the Bible. The Scriptures never contradict each other, and the Spirit always confirms the Word. The Spirit and the Word work hand in hand always. Inspired scriptures are authoritative, inerrant, and infallible because they come from God. And so here we get to the root of the issue. If something is breathed out by God, if it is inspired by God, he's the author. And so you have to ask the question, does God make mistakes? Is God fallible? Is God errant? Is God not the authority? The doctrine of the inspiration of the Word of God would be meaningless if it was not totally inspired, as I said above, but this doctrine is affected by our understanding of God. Now, Jesus, there's a train of thought that Jesus presents in John's Gospel that we've been, Brother Brett's been preaching through for the last couple of years. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. 
John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. John 17, 17 in the highest priestly prayer, sanctify them, that is his disciples, in the truth and your word is truth. And so there's this chain, God and the Father, or Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus is the way, the truth, he's the truth. And then sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth, the word is truth. So so there's this chain that goes from Jesus and, and God to the word. If we're believing in the Word, we're believing in God. If we're believing what the Bible says, we're believing what God says. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. And Titus 1, 2 says that God never lies. And so we understand that God is holy, holy, holy. And he cannot lie. He will never lie. He never has lied. He cannot lie. He is pure, incapable of evil. And when you think about it, God would have no no motivation to lie. God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He has no fear. He's not going to lie to protect himself. People will do that all the time. God is omniscient. He knows everything, past, present, and future. He knows it all. Therefore, he's not going to make a mistake. He is all-wise, never making any foolish errors. So there's no errors in his word. He is sovereign. He has ownership of the entire universe. He has no need for anything from us. Therefore, when God speaks, he speaks without the possibility of error or lie. Only truth all the time. Only truth all the time. That's God's word. The doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, then, is rooted in the eternal character of a God who never lies, who has absolute power and authority. What he says he says is indeed true and authoritative. Now, there are competitors for this claim, right? There are other books out there that that claim to be from God. You've got uh, the Koran. Muhammad claimed that the angel Gabriel would give him messages. These messages were were written down in a very uh, hodgepodge manner. And then eventually after Muhammad died, his followers kind of collected them all and and produced uh, the Koran. The Book of Mormon, you know, our church is getting ready to send a mission team to to Utah to share the gospel with Mormons. They claim uh, Joseph Smith received a uh, a visitation from the angel Moroni and showed him where to dig and he found these golden plates in reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics, which is quite entertaining. There's no scholar anywhere has ever found reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. And uh, yet he claims that this is another testament of Jesus Christ and yet it is so full of errors. It is written at about a fourth grade level. It's, there's no historical evidence at all for their claims about uh, the Jews coming to America, and that's where the Indians come from. I mean, it, it's the Book of Mormon is, if you want to just look at it from an academic perspective, it's laughable. From a spiritual perspective, it's horrifying. It leads millions of people to hell. The Koran leads many millions of people to hell. In fact, it hurries up the process, it seems. So, 
there are competitors for this claim of being inspired of God, being the authoritative word of God. But listen to what Paul says in Galatians 1.8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And so it's amazing that with that verse, what we find is that two different religions claim, two different angels brought a new revelation. They claim to be from God, but they're really from the pit of hell. So there are competitors to science, atheistic science. You know, I, I'm not against science. Science, uh, it, when you study the roots of modern science, it comes from a Christian worldview, but many uh, have forsaken Christ and the gospel, and so atheism has entered in and seems to be controlling the direction of science these days. But science claims to be an authority and uh, disregards the scriptures, disregards the Bible, claims that we're unscientific. And, and so they, they, again, rise up against the God, the creator of the universe, and, and uh, raise their fist at God and say, no, we came from apes. No, we came from the primordial soup that was struck by lightning, and that's where life came from. So science denies the authority of God's Word. There are many Christians who are scientists, however, and God bless them, and, and may they continue in that good work in that uh, lost field to share the gospel and, and show that science, in fact, reflects the mind of God. Now back to our, our passage here. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Profitable, beneficial, productive, useful, sufficient. Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 are, are excellent sources for understanding our doctrine of Scripture. In, in Psalm 119, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against, against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I'll meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And there in Psalm 119, we have the, the perfect description of how the believer's heart should be turned to God's word. Here's some application. This is where we see what difficult days Paul and Timothy had and what difficult days perhaps we will face. It begins with this uncompromising concept that all Scripture is inspired by an omnipotent, omniscient, holy God. If God's Word is true, it is therefore authoritative and will confront us with our sin, 
will confront our society with its sin in an uncompromising manner. The Christians in Paul's day could not join in the worship of the pagan gods in addition to worshiping the Lord. And that was something that their society required. It wasn't so much that they were bothered that Christians were worshiping Jesus. They would not join in in the worship of the false gods. And therefore, they were considered to be not just odd, not just strange, but unpatriotic and dangerous because the Roman gods were part of keeping a civil society in Rome. You worshiped their gods and you were a full member of society. You did not worship the gods. You may bring some bad luck and the gods may get angry and strike a whole community because of you. And so they were perceived as a threat by the Romans. <coughs> and that's why Nero could get away with blaming the Christians so readily. As people, in people's minds already, the Christians were evil because they worship, did not worship their gods. And plus they had a corrupt view. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. They had a corrupt view of uh, what Christians did with the Lord's Supper. They believed that cannibalism was involved. The Jews had long received a special exemption by Rome, but the Christians were now quickly identified as being detestable, uh, an off-branch of Judaism, and therefore not under their protection. And so Paul is facing execution. Our society has turned from being Christian to being post-Christian to now even anti-Christian. The Gallup polls show right now that most Americans believe that not only is being gay okay, but gay marriage is okay. And this is an astounding reversal from similar polls as recently as 10 years ago. Now, you cannot have special gay rights and First Amendment rights of free exercise of religion for Christians in the same legal system. One will rule out over the other. They, they cancel each other out. This very month, the Supreme Court of the United States is going to make a ruling on gay marriage. I have no confidence that they will do the right thing. And so what we may possibly see as, as, as soon as later on this month is that the traditional idea of marriage between one man and one woman will evaporate. That's a possibility. If it doesn't happen this time, it may happen the next time in a few years that another suit is brought. And what happens when, when uh, same-sex marriage takes place is that that opens a legal door using other constitutional premises uh, like the 14th Amendment to then prosecute Christians who don't adhere to that interpretation of the law. Many heretical churches will obviously celebrate and rejoice, but churches that believe in the inspiration and authority of the Bible will come under increasing societal pressure to conform to the legal pressure. Southwestern Baptist Seminary and the college could possibly lose accreditation along with any Christian school that opposes the gay agenda. It will start with Baptist agencies and schools and hospitals, but eventually the attack will come home to the church. You simply will not be able to have the freedom to, to voice your objection to things like that, else you'll be guilty of hate speech. It's already happened with Christian entrepreneurs, bakers of wedding cakes, photographers of, of weddings, in the workplace. If, you, uh, if your company sponsors some type of training where, you know, everybody's got to believe everybody's okay and that 
you know, whatever gays do is okay. And if you voice a, an objection as a Christian in the workplace, you can lose that next promotion. You can lose your job. You can be uh, fired. So, so that is one danger that looms imminently in our society over the church that may bring difficult days to the church. And our unwillingness to compromise God's word in that regard is absolutely essential, whatever the cost is. And we should bear that cost and use that to spread the gospel even more. Well, what about Sharia law coming into America, as it already has in some places? Well, that's a possibility. It's happened in England. Uh, it's happened to an extent in, in Canada. Uh, and, and so what will we do when polygamy becomes a norm in our society? And that will probably happen too. Or what will hap- what will we, how will we respond when the age of consent laws are dropped down to 14, 13, 12, 10, according to Muslim culture? You see, when you believe the Bible to be the inspired and authoritative word, it's going to create conflict. The world has always hated Christ, and the word of Christ will always be hated. These conflicts are inevitable. And so we receive, we we may grieve for our country and the damage that these kinds of things are going to cause, but we can rejoice in that it spurs us to share the gospel even more. We will be accused of being narrow-minded and bigoted. We'll be called names. Oh, pity us. Called bad names. Meanwhile, Christians in the Middle East are losing their heads. This doctrine of the inspiration of God's Word that cannot be compromised, it's not merely for intellect, it's not merely for an apologetic purpose, although that, that is good, but when difficult days come and we are groaning along with creation, awaiting the return of the Lord, this understanding of Scripture will give us great comfort as the conflict comes. The Holy Spirit takes our our Scriptures and warms us with them, keeps us motivated for the mission, brings us hope of eternal life and, and hope for the coming of the Lord. It's the inspired scriptures that tell us of his glorious resurrection. It's the inspired scriptures with the Holy Spirit that convinces us of the truth of the gospel. You may be ready to share the gospel and you think, well, this person I'm going to share the gospel with, they don't believe the Bible. They speak badly of the Bible. They speak badly of Christ and the, and the church. So they're not even going to believe me if I quote scripture. Well, that's not a problem at all for the Holy Spirit. We have to understand that when we give the word of God to to unbelievers, when we share the gospel with unbelievers, the Holy Spirit has more power than they do. The Holy Spirit can change their heart in an instant by applying the word of God that never fails to them. It's not you or I who make that difference. It's the Holy Spirit applying the word that makes that difference. The, The word of God comes from God, is used by God to change people's lives. Inspired scriptures teach us who God is, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for our salvation, how we are to follow him on a daily uh, life of, of obedience. The world is screening for purpose. The Bible tells us of the purpose of the creator. He tells us, the Bible tells us of the love of God. The Bible tells us 
how we have a purpose in, in loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves and in sharing the gospel. The scriptures reprove us. That is, they point out our sin, they expose our inner corruption, our need for God's grace. Because the Bible is inspired by God and is authoritative, we can trust the wisdom of God as His Word reproves us, pointing out our failures. The Scriptures correct us. They show us how to get back on the right path after pointing out our sin, and that gives us hope. It's one thing to always have your sins pointed out. That can be a depressing thing. But the Scriptures point out our sin and then point out the fix, how to correct us, gives us hope, gives us encouragement. The Scriptures train us in righteousness so that we can be imitators of Christ, fit for His use in the kingdom, living out the gospel. In conclusion, all of us face the normal difficulties of life. There are lousy days when the kids are fussy and messy or sick and toaster burns the toast and the car breaks down and rough day at work. And then there's really bad things like cancer, accidents that cripple, deaths in the family, loss of jobs and income. Paul was facing execution. Timothy was facing a bunch of heretics with moral problems inside the church. We, as a Christian people in America, are facing a culture that is rapidly changing to the point where we can reasonably expect persecution and prosecution, lawsuits and loss of liberties in our lifetime. Our mission remains the same, however, to declare the glory of God in difficult days or in wonderful days. We declare the glory of God to our neighbors and the nations. That doesn't change with the times. It doesn't change with the amount of persecution. It doesn't change with your situation. The mission remains the same. So whatever we are facing, peace and prosperity or doom and desolation, the doctrine of the inspiration of God's Word remains the same. It gives us confidence that here is something outside of myself that is true and unchanging, that is powerful and authoritative. Gives us assurance and hope as the Holy Spirit applies the Word of God to our hearts, convincing us of its truthfulness, convicting us of our sin, giving us the hope of Christ coming back. Now, I don't know your personal spiritual condition this morning, whether you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, or if you're maybe here out of curiosity or a family obligation, or just to put on a religious show, you may be hurting badly. It may be that you're spiritually hungry for more of Christ, more of the gospel, more of God's word. And I can point you to this book, the only book in all the world, in all of history, that is breathed out by the creator of the universe. Go to this book. Seek Christ. Go to this book. God will not disappoint you. Go to this book and trust in the Holy Spirit to be your teacher, to reprove you, correct you, and train you. I close with this instruction from Zechariah chapter 1. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? 
And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. If we do not listen to the word of God, if we compromise, if we go along with our culture, if we don't accept it as the inspired authoritative word of God, if we rely on our own wisdom instead, if we compromise and play the coward when the world confronts us, then the word of the Lord of hosts will overtake us and the suffering and shame will be great. So stay in the word. Be encouraged by the word. Stay steadfast. Preach the word in season and out of season. And if you have never submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never repented of your sins and said, I believe, this may be the day of salvation for your soul. I would urge you, consider the truthfulness of God's word. God, the, the Lord Jesus Christ said, repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not remained silent. Lord, you've spoken to us through the prophets of old. You've spoken to us directly from your Son, who lived as a man in this world. And you've spoken to us through the apostles. Lord, help us to believe your word because it comes from you and you do not lie. Lord, may we be changed as your spirit applies the word to our hearts. May we be fearless and courageous as our culture turns about and comes at us. Lord, may we be like Paul and willing to, st to stay the course, to preach the gospel, to not compromise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.